0: Thank you. I want to uh, thank the chairman and the committees of AA and uh, Alnone. I also want to thank my hostess, Karen, and I also want to thank Betty Ann, who helped me find my room. I had a horrible time finding my room. (laughs) This is confusing, confusion and confusion. Well anyhow, (laughs) I didn't come here. There, there isn't anyone that I know here outside of Lois and Elsa. But I came here because Lois is going to be here. Lois came here because she thought I was going to be here. Now this is confusing too. It's been uh, the last meeting I spoke at was in uh, Denver. That was 75. That's a long time ago. <laughs> Well, anyhow, I met Lois and Bill in '42. I met them at my husband's sponsor's home, and you know, it's a a strange mystery the way he got the sponsor. Our uh, oh very interesting (laughs) this is it Uh, our uh, doctor who didn't know what AA was said to me you go up and see Wilbur because I was at my end's wet and I was going to leave period well I went to see Wilbur and it was years after that that I knew that that was his last binge too (laughs) He was sober, and he went on his last binge. Well, anyhow, I am very, uh... I'll draw a blank every once in a while, don't mind me. (laughs) Um... Talk about memories, heavenly day. Lois and I were taping all morning, and that's all I have to do is tape and talk, and talk and tape. But... um, We started the al group headquarters in 51, and we had uh, a lot of ups and downs. We managed to get out of them. And uh, now that we have the archives, uh, <laughs> everything's going into the archives. I don't have an El piece of literature home But anyhow, um, I hope that Lois finds a little black book that we used to keep, because when we first started, uh, the, we called it The Clearing House, and, <laughs> and uh, Lois and I would put out the money to have this literature sent away, and lo and behold, one day, wouldn't you know, it would be a man from Lynn, Massachusetts, send us a donation that was our first donation and after that it it really came up very nicely I don't I really don't um, <laughs> as I say I draw a blank I'm not a speaker and I haven't spoken for a long time but um, I do want to um, say a few words for my which I call my famous poet, Walt Whitman, in memory of my daughter, who died in January because of alcoholism. And these words, I think, are very appropriate. I come to you then in love and thought to tell you that immorality, immorality can never be bought. You must come to God in humility and love and send your heart uh, to him who is just above. And thank you very much. Can I
1: tell a little bit about Dr. Bob and a little bit about oh. Bill and Annie? Oh, <laughs> <the cigarettes? laughs> me to tell <laughs> you know
0: <laughs> there, were, there were a few things that I should tell you <laughs> you know leave it, to Mar- leave it to Betty Ann she's the one that can really get you into the mood of it but I did know Dr. Bob I did know Annie and I just loved them and Annie used to smoke. And this is a time when you couldn't get a cigarette. Because, I don't know, they had prohibition on cigarettes. But she smoked halfway down. Well, when Bill ran out of cigarettes, he would go around and collect any cigarettes and smoke them. <laughs> and I think that uh, maybe I did too. Because I used to be a heavy smoker for a long time. A uh, very heavy smoker. I stopped smoking. It didn't it didn't bother me uh occasionally i'll have a cigarette but uh, <laughs> what do they say little by little you work up to it just like why the alcoholic <laughs> why
1: don't you tell them about the other night we were in santa Paula about your closing words to them about us keeping in contact and keeping in communication up
0: yes i think the best thing for the Alman to do is to uh, keep in contact and don't be afraid to be a, a volunteer. And when you know about somebody that's new, telephone. I used to use the telephone all the time. And I've been away from Alnon for a while because I traveled all around. I went here, there, and everywhere. Uh, but I never forgot Alnon. When I was in Alnon, I took the fourth step. And it was this step that helped me to remember not to be greedy and not to be resentful. And so since then, I've learned to love. And i learned to love anybody, good or bad. And so I love you all. And God bless you.
2: Hi. It's great to be here with you all today at this roundup, and it's my very first time I've been as a roundup. And my very first time that I've received such a thing. (laughs)
1: And
2: in the course of my I'll tell you a little bit about how I deserve to be a member of the First Chapter. (laughs) You know that you're laughing here and your happy faces. Is one of the greatest things I think that there is in AA and our Alateen is the joy and the happiness that we receive by being together it is a, a terrific terrific thing to feel the comradeship and the joint inspirations that we do here together. And the fun, the fun, I think, is a very, very important part that we get out of our three big A's. A.A., al and (coughs) al Well, I've been asked to tell you a little bit about my own story, and it begins way back when Bill and I were engaged. And I was very, very proud of him because he never touched a drop of liquor. (laughs) (laughs) He would go with the boys to the saloons. They called the saloons in those days, set of bars. And he would have sarsaparilla, or birch beer or some soft drink of those days while they had their beer. And I thought, what strength of character. (laughs) How wonderful he is. And, of course, I've always kept that idea ever since then. But not exactly for that purpose, that reason. But we were married. And it was way back in the First World War, and Bill was an officer stationed at New Bedford, Massachusetts. And that was quite a social town, and they gave lots of parties for the officers of the post. And I used to kid Bill and tell him that it was the gals that threw him that he could resist the boys asking him to have a drink but he could not resist the
1: girls
2: (laughs) so to my great consternation when I moved to New Bedford after our marriage and we had an apartment there we went to a party and I was ready to go home and there was no bill around Where was my husband? And I asked several of the boys, and they said, oh, we had to take him home some time ago. He's now in bed in your apartment. So when I got there, there he was, in bed with a big bucket at his head. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was a terrific shock. I hadn't had any idea that he was drinking until this water came along. And I wasn't too frightfully discouraged for the future, though, because I thought that living with me would be such a great inspiration. (laughs) That he, <laughs> that he wouldn't need any artificial
1: something,
2: um, any artificial inspiration. So time went on, and Bill's drinking kept getting worse, and living with me seemed to do nothing but increase the drinking. <laughs> were very, very happy together though. We had a, a unique camaraderie. I think that many husbands and wives do not, unfortunately, do not have. We loved to be together. And as the years went on, even though we went through some very, very difficult and hard times, i would have rather been with him drunk than away from him sober so we lived these 17 years together with many 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 ups and downs but always a feeling of belonging to each other, and of this inner partnership, but his drinking, of course, got so that he was good for nothing, absolutely nothing but drinking, and he would stay home While I went to work I had to make all the decisions, be the support of the family, and watch this my beloved husband deteriorate into nothing but a, oh I don't know, a sop or nothing. He didn't have any, any ambition to do anything but go to the liquor store and get liquor. And he, Joe had wanted desperately to stop drinking. And for the last five or six years, his one, one idea was to stop, but he could not stop. He wanted with all the was in him to stop drinking. And he wrote in the Bible, way back in 1928, I promise you, my dear wife, never to take another drink. And he truly meant it, I believe. He had a disease which we did not really recognize either one of us an obsession which he could not overcome and together we could not overcome him but something marvelous happened and I'm sure you've all read it in the big book about the marvelous spiritual awakening that Bill had Our lives were changed. I had one look at him when I went to the hospital where he was and I knew something overwhelming about. And from that day on I never, never had a doubt that he was through with liquor forever. And he never doubted And so it was, he never drank again. And to go back a little bit and tell you what happened after this wonderful experience. He thought, well, I was able to sober up. I had a spiritual awakening. So could other people. And he went around the highways and the byways. He went to the hospital where he'd been. He went to the Oxford group whom Emmy, the man who came and told him about his spiritual awakening. He went to the place where Emmy, the meetings that Emmy went to, they were the Oxford group meetings. He went everywhere and tried to get people to work on, and he brought them to the house. We were living in Brooklyn. My father had um, left the house to get married, but the mortgage company owned the house, and we had a large amount, I think it was $20. It may have been $40, I can't seem to remember which, that we paid a month for a 5 room house a five-story house in a city. (laughs) But the mortgage company finally got, um, finally got a buyer. So then we had to get out, but that was 1939. That was after a lot of water under the bridge. But um, In those years before we had to leave, um, we had the house full of drugs. On every floor of the house, (laughs) there were alcoholics living. (laughs) And it was really a very exciting time. them stay if they were drunk they had to be sober and Bill got back and started to do some business he'd been working on the stock in the stock market he was a analyst he used to go to the if he was interested stock wise in a company he would go to the plant of that company and investigate and assess its future uh, progress, whether it would be worth buying from a a substantial um, viewpoint and not just from whether the stock market was going up or down. So he got a job in Akron to go to Akron to uh, analyze a company that was in in, uh, bankruptcy that was headed that way, the Roman Machinery Company. And uh, he went there and he he uh, didn't have any success, and so the company wasn't, wasn't much. and uh, the people that were there with him, they all left. and he was at the Mayflower Hotel in Akron, and he had10 dollars in his pocket, and he, he was walking up and down the, the uh, aisles or the, not the aisles but the lobby. <laughs> I'm mixing my edifice. The, uh, the uh, lobby of the hotel, and uh, there was a bar at one end, and the people in there were jolly and laughing and having a good time. It was kind of tempting to him. But then at the other end, there was a church directory, and he remembered that the one thing that helped him before he came to Akron was helping other people, helping others sober up so he said what I need is some drugs to work on so he looked at the church directory and he thought well ministers should know uh, about drugs to work on so um, <clears throat> he picked a funny name Bill was very interested in words and in funny names and this man's name was the Reverend Tunks. He thought that was a funny name so he'd call him up and he did call him up and and the reverend tugs knew just what he was talking about and said i have just the person for you to see in the oxford group a a woman who uh, is very she knows lots of people and uh, she can help you find other others that somebody to help so he gave her the name of Henrietta Sibelig. Bill didn't want to call it first because Sibelig was the name of a big tire manufacturer company. And he thought, well, what will a woman like that want to see a drunk like me on a Sunday afternoon? But he finally decided to do it, and he called her up. And again, he had understanding. Henrietta knew just what he was talking about. She was in the Oxford group, the same fellowship, same organization that Emmy, who had come to him earlier, was in. And she said, Yes, I know just just the person for you to talk with. So, Henrietta called up Annie Smith, Bob Smith's wife, Dr. Bob's wife. And Annie said, Oh yes, we'd love to come, but we can't today. Today is Mother's Day. And Bob has brought home a plant. And it's on the table. And Bob is underneath the table. (laughs) we'll come tomorrow and said and they did they came tomorrow and of course Bob thought oh well I'll just stay 15 minutes but they stayed on and on hour, hour after hour and talked and talked and talked and there was something that happened between them there was an understanding and it was uh, they knew that they had something that they could do together well, Bob had to, um, he, he was a, a, a doctor, or a, I a, can't think what kind of a doctor he was, but anyway. Um, he used to go on a doctor's convention every, um, every year, Atlantic City. And uh, this was coming up, and Annie, his wife, didn't want him to go. She was afraid he might get drunk, but Bill said yes. Let him go. So he went, and he did come back drunk. <laughs> but um, but the first thing, that Andy and Bob, Andy and Bill, knew was Bob, wasn't there, and they didn't know where he was, so they were a little scared. This was the day after he returned, and when he came back. He said he'd made restitution, he'd been around to the people that he had felt he had harmed and told them that he was an alcoholic and that he was sorry of any hurt that he had given them. So Bob had started on his own, the on the principles of 12 steps of AA. So that's really when AA started. At least that's what it is for most of the people. It isn't for me because when AA started, it's when Bill sobered up in Clinton Street in Brooklyn. But the really the founding of of the fellowship, when there were two people, the people that Bill worked with, some of them stayed, stayed sober, but. They didn't really stay sober um, long periods, and it's only only Bob that stayed sober for the rest of his, I mean, of those early, early people. So, um, Founders Day, I think it was the 10th of June, which is really two or three days here now, will be the anniversary. And uh, I'm going to go back a little bit and tell you about this side because I kind of skipped over it earlier when I was telling you about the bills investigating these different companies. This is while he was still drinking. This is way back in 1925. Um, Bill got this idea um, that... um, if you wanted really to, um, to purchase anything, you ought to find out all the details. His grandfather, when he wanted to buy a cow, Bill was a, born up on the farm in Vermont, and his grandfather, when he wanted to buy a cow, would go out and investigate the cow, see how much milk it, it gave, and feel its legs and see if it was healthy and so he believed that to buy a stock you should go out and understand a little bit about the whole setup so he had a job and i had a job and we both of us gave up this job our jobs and took off on a motorcycle (laughs) Motorcycle had a sidecar <laughs> And Bill didn't like to drive very much, and I love to <laughs> So Bill, who was six feet three <laughs> his long legs, Of the hood and the sidecar. He couldn't get them inside because we had it all packed. We went, we packed all our belongings for a whole year and went off, but he had his legs over, and I, of course, was a little peanut sitting on the driver's seat. So we were a funny looking rig. lived nearly a year on this motorcycle. So that's why I belong to this. (laughs) And we had a wonderful time. And Bill really um, got started well in this stock market so that he made lots of money at one time before the 1929 crash. But then the crash did come and we, we lost everything we had, of course. <clears throat> well, now let's see where I'll, where I'll jump to because I went back on that. I was telling you about the... Uh, about the groups starting and after Bill went to Akron. And this is uh, after, of course, many years later after Bill Soman up, way back in 1935, he went, Bill in 34, in December of 34, but he went to Akron in, in June of 35. Well, I think that really should... Oh, I haven't told you how I came. That's (laughs) it. I knew there was something (laughs) up Well, after Bill's sobered up, Back then, this time, 1934, that I was telling you about. We went to these Oxford group meetings that Emmy belonged to. And I went along with him. And I went along not because I thought I needed them. I'd been brought up with a good religious family. I had done everything I could think of to help my husband. I didn't feel I needed this spiritual problem. But I. I felt that Bill did. <laughs> so, I went along with him for his sake, not for mine. And then one day later on, when we had this house full of people, Bill said to me, I us hurry up and get dressed now and let's go to the meeting. And I had a shoe in my hand and I that, I threw that shoe just as hard as I could and I said, damn your old meetings. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I was more shocked at myself than Bill was I think and I tried to figure out why why had I reacted so violently at a very simple remark of his and it took me many many years to figure it out and to realize that I needed the program just as much as Bill did entirely for entirely different reasons but I needed it I was full of resentment. I had spent my whole life trying to help Bill sober get sober. And it failed. Somebody else came along. And in two minutes Bill was sober. <laughs> I was full of resentment at these people that had done something that I couldn't do, and jealousy. I hadn't let myself believe this. I have a great power of rationalization. (laughs) I think maybe we all have. (laughs) But mine was very virulent. Anyway, I rationalized that I was so happy now that Bill was sober. But there must have been something, what was it, that was underneath that made me react violently. It was this, that I, uh, these traits that I had tried to cover up and, um, not re- not recognize at all this resentment and, and uh, jealousy of other people doing something that I haven't done. And it took me a long, long time, as I said earlier, to really understand myself and to take my own inventory and to analyze my reasons behind hiding why I did such a thing. Was it really an, a selfish reason camouflaged or rationalized? I think we could do a tremendous amount of that. We alimans especially could do a tremendous amount of rationalizing and not recognizing our own our own different faults. So, in those early days of AA, there there was no literature, and if you wanted to start a group, or help others to start a group, you had to go to the place, you couldn't send a pamphlet, you had to go. So we traveled a lot, we went all around the country. Um, As AA began to grow. And while Bill would be talking to I would talk to the families. Addie Smith did this too, to quite an extent. But they couldn't, Addie was older, they were considerably older than Bill and me, and Addie was ill, and she had poor eyes, and they couldn't get around. So they didn't travel the way Bill and I did. And while Bill was talking to the AA's, I'd be telling the families about how I had discovered that I too needed to live by the 12 steps of AA just as much, if not more, than Bill. That my, all my difficulties, my faults and things were far more subtle, his was obvious And you know it, it is very much harder for the family of an alcoholic to recognize their need than it is for the alcoholic we have a tremendous tremendous uh, prospective membership in fact we have practically the whole world <laughs> but it's We've been on the credit side and the alcoholic on the debit, and that gives us a sense of superiority or something, that we, um, we feel we don't need this, that we're a bit above it, that we, that we are already formed characters all to the good. But that is not so. <laughs> <laughs> We've suffered all kinds of of, of disarrange, disarrangement during this time. Trying to run their life, the alcoholic's life, is one of the prime things. Instead of leaving it up to the alcoholic to, uh, when he stumbles, to pick himself up. We thought we could help, but instead of that, we've injured, we've harmed very much in our mistaken ideas of, of what helpfulness was. So, the Alabama program got to be formulated by degrees, and in 1951, Ann Bingham, who is here with me today, and I started writing to the 87 names of families of alcoholics who had written to the AA office asking for help but the AA office didn't know anything about non-alcoholics and they just answered a polite answer and filed the letters but they had these 87 names and Ann and I and big of this you see there are two ads in this story Ann Smith way back in the early early days and and beginning in 1951 she helped me she was a friend a neighbor whose husband had been an alcoholic and she had had a an on group um in our needed our own house you see before 51 there was um, all of our groups all over the country, but they were not called that they were called the families of alcoholics or they were called um, AA auxiliary
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: they were called a lot of different things <laughs> you could laugh at that a lot because the AAs did call them a lot of different things.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the A's were a bit pleased at first for this <laughs> because they thought we were talking telling their escapades behind their backs. But of course that was one of the prime things we stipulated about the early about all al was that this was for our own our own program we're talking about our own default uh, faults, defects Um, and nothing about the alcoholic not talking about his defects but our own and that's one of the very prime principles of Alabama. And Anne and I started, as I said, Anne Bingham and I started at Stepping Stones upstairs, in the upstairs room up there. And we wrote to these 87 names and we got 50 back, 50 answers. So Alabama really started with 50 groups and um, pretty soon I I was so busy that we thought we should move to New York and the AAs, although they uh, uh, didn't really appreciate all of our love, but nevertheless they let us use their clubhouse. In those days it was quite the style for AAs to have clubhouses And uh, we used to meet in the clubhouse in New York upstairs. This room had been the Illustrators Club at this building at one time. And it was built back from the street through a little alleyway that uh, the AAs called the Last Mile. And we met upstairs there, and we started this uh, getting volunteers, in, and then, well, our has grown just terrifically. It's had the, it's had the uh, ground all plowed ahead of the time by A.A. We just followed in AA's footsteps. We used their steps and their principles and their traditions, just applying them to our own problems and changing in wording anything that needed to be changed. But AA had done all the groundwork and we just came along and reaped the benefits, so to speak. And <clears throat> Our potential is unlimited, and I'm—I know that our three big A's. I'm just as sure this as anything have really a part the power to change the whole world. We're in such trouble times these days, and our beautiful principles and our joy and our happiness are so much needed and I think that they already have and will continue to have great, great power in changing this troubled world. I thank you.